Okay. All resuscitologists, we are go, no go for podcasting. Pre-hospital. Go. Emergency. Go. Anesthesia. Go. Pediatrics. Go. Trauma. Go. ICU. Go. Resuscitologist. We are go for podcasting. Welcome, everyone. This is Cliff Reed, joined by fellow resuscitologists Libby Hanrahan. Hey. Jeff Healy. Present. Brian Burns. How you doing? Natalie May. Good evening. And Carl Harbig. Hi, everybody. We are the resuscitology team. Now, resuscitology began as a course in which we invited clinicians to share cases with us that didn't go so well so that we could all learn from those cases and figure out how we can all resuscitate patients better in future. And after more than two years and dozens of cases, we know that the factors that go wrong that can involve ourselves, our teams and our environments and our patients can happen in any environment from pre-hospital through the ED to theatres and the ICU involving adults and children and in medical conditions as well as trauma. Now, some of the most frequently submitted scenario types that people send us have involved bleeding patients and also airway issues, lots of pediatric patients, and of course, communication and human factors as well as poor systems. Of all of those, today in this first resuscitology podcast, we're going to discuss bleeding. We'll use a trauma case to get started, but remember these principles can be applied to, say, an alcoholic with bleeding esophageal varices or a kid with haemophilia who's got epistaxis. So let's think about this case, and we'll start from the pre-hospital area. Um, There's been a motor vehicle collision. There's an adult female who is our patient. She's a front seat passenger involved in a head-on collision. The driver is deceased. And this patient appears to be trapped with multiple injuries. She's at least got injuries to the chest and the abdomen, probably the pelvis. um, And we think maybe from the legs as well in that there's some blood pooling in the footwell in the vehicle. Now she's pale and drowsy and in pain whenever the paramedics on scene try to move her. And the crew hasn't been able to get a blood pressure. And when we arrive, there are discussions about whether to get the roof off, maybe do a dash roll. but To your eyes, when you first see her, she seems to be more trapped clinically than physically. And in other words, she's trapped by injury rather than trapped by confinement or compression, which is the local language um, of extrication here in New South Wales, Australia. So Libby, let's, let's start with you. This is your field. As a critical care paramedic, what sort of things are you thinking when you approach a patient like this? And how do you prioritize when you have limited resources on scene? Yeah, it's funny how you say, how would you approach a patient like this? I think that my mind's already been ticking over before arriving at this patient. Um, Even if I've only got minimal information, uh, if I had someone who was deceased in the same vehicle, that would be, you know, enough alone without even hearing anything about the actual patient to say, all right, you need to have a high index of suspicion that there's something serious going on here. Um, if you did have all the information that you've just presented then, I would be wanting to be well and truly ahead of this patient in terms of we know that this patient's critical and if we let the patient get in front of us, we're possibly never, ever, ever going to catch up to that patient and we're going to be chasing our tails for the rest of the job. So what does that actually mean? 
that means that I'm going to think about, all right, this is a severe trauma, potentially bleeding. I'm going to be thinking about where can I get extra blood if I need. I'm going to be thinking about what hospital I'm going to be travelling to and I'm going to be having these discussions before I actually get there. I'm also going to be having a pretty candid discussion with the doctor that I'm working alongside to really just highlight what we think our priorities are. And, you know, you're not going to be able to uh, hit the nail on the head every single time with what your priorities are. But I think in gross terms with a patient like this, I think we need to just be really, really sure or make it really obvious within the team and then when we arrive and what we've been told is confirmed that you just go, all right, this patient actually what they need is hospital and every single thing that we're doing between now and hospital is buying time to make sure that we get them to hospital alive. This is a critically ill patient. She's drowsy. She's pale. She has multiple, multiple injuries and we have to just presume the worst. We have to presume that she's going to continue heading downhill and I'm going to want to make sure that I'm activating that additional blood um, and we have, you know, a blood network where we refer back to our tasking agencies and I'd want to do that really, really early to make the best possible chance of that actually arriving to us for us to be able to give it to the patient. When we get there, I think we need to actually get eyes on, see whether the information we had and the initial plan that we had still fits. Uh, the bits that still fit, we confirm with the whole team. The fit bits that need to be adjusted, we confirm with the whole team. We need to actually also engage with other agencies on scene here because if this patient isn't actually truly trapped by either compression or confinement, then we need to get this person out every single minute that we're spending allowing for the extrication process to drag on longer than it needs means that this patient is further away and it's going to be longer for them to actually get to where they need to be. So it's funny, like I haven't even talk, spoken about one intervention yet, but this is where my head is. It's racing with all these logistical decisions because I know that my endpoint in terms of what role I play in the initial pre-hospital phase is actually about making sure that I keep that as short as possible because there really is no additional time that I can afford for me to not get this right and not to actually streamline it as best as possible. So I suppose in terms of interventions on this patient, getting them out, getting them out quickly but obviously safely, um, I'm going to want to be getting IV access. This is our lifeline and if I can't get IV access, I'm going to you know, probably have a pretty low threshold for then gaining intraosseous um, access. So I'll be going straight for blood in this patient. They're pale, they're drowsy, significant trauma, um, and we're probably going to be chasing our tails. So there's no point messing around with crystalloids, etc., etc., when we know that we've actually got what we need. Having said that, we also need to make sure that we complement that with stopping the bleed so that we don't just waste these very precious products. So part of that is the big injuries, the big obvious injuries. I think they get addressed. But, you know, something like a lack on, on a calf, that can trickle, you know, 60, 70, 80, 200 mils during a transport and this patient doesn't have that extra 200 mils. So these are all the things that we're trying to look at. What we can really take away from that is even though you're part of a team that's going to deliver 
multiple advanced interventions on scene, the paramedic in you, in that critical care paramedic, is well aware that delays on scene with unnecessary interventions are going to be detrimental. And I love the way you worded that, that we can't let the patient get in front of us, otherwise we'll never catch up. And the whole time you're thinking ahead, you're setting the mission trajectory and you're going to be controlling the other resources on scene, controlling the patient, and to some extent controlling the critical care physician you're working with to keep moving things forward. And that is the essence of what differentiates an expert paramedic or an expert in pre-hospital care from a less experienced practitioner. The evidence shows, as well as the clinical stuff, more importantly, it's that scene management and control of the mission trajectory. Uh, you mentioned IV access even before airway being your lifeline, you know, and, and people will go along thinking resuscitation is all about ABC or CABC and trauma. But in your experience, you can't really make anything happen, can you, till you've got access to the circulation. You can't secure the airway unless you can anesthetize and therefore you need you need IV access. So h- how do you manage that difficulty when you've got a shutdown patient who's who's still in the vehicle? What are your options there for gaining access to the circulation? Yeah, and... Uh, it's funny, like the IV access thing, um, absolutely. In a patient like this, it, it, it literally is a lifeline. And you know that for every minute that goes by, they become more and more shut down. And the likelihood of you being able to gain that IV access is sort of trickling away as their blood volume and their perfusion and everything trickles away. So that's why you want to try and get in early because we probably prefer our IV access over our IO access. However, for me, I have a couple of rules. It's a tourniquet on each arm. I'm not even going to look at legs in a patient like this. We want something that's not, you know, going to be having to travel through the pelvic region, which is probably all busted up in this patient. Tourniquet on each arm, one go on each arm. If that fails, we're straight on to IO. And I think for me, I just have these rules so that when I come to making that decision, it's not deliberating as to whether I'm pulling the trigger too soon on the IO. It's just that, no, I know that I can have a go for two two IV accesses. That should take me no longer than a minute or two. And then I'm moving on to the IO. And that offloads my cognitive, I suppose, headspace that while I'm doing that, I'm actually thinking about the next step and then the next step. So Libby, um, you've said to the team, uh, words to the effect of this doesn't need to look pretty. All right. We forget cutting the roof off. We've got a space to move this deteriorating patient out. How are you going to prepare your workspace for when she comes out? Because that's something I've noticed you and your colleagues do. It's those two, three, four steps ahead. We're looking at the patient, but you've already thought about what the patient's going to look like in five minutes and where they're going to be and what's going to be happening to them. Yeah. So we love to sort of coin the phrase of a patient receipt area. And that's an unpredictable patient receipt area because it's not like we're going to wheel them around to the, you know, resus bay. It's going to be whatever environment we're in, we're going to have to build a little area that's going to, the best that you could probably hope for is that we can actually get a stretcher into that space that we're going to be able to have 360 degree access around the patient. If we can choose whether to be in the shade or the sun, I'd choose the shade every day of the week, but sometimes we can't choreograph that. And then I actually need to think about, all right, what, how am I physically going to move the patient from where they are to where that patient receipt area is? And often we use, you know, simple tools such as a spine board where we're just using that as a platform. But when I deliver that patient onto the bed, you think, okay, well, we're 
presuming that this patient's got pelvic injury. So I want my bed to be preloaded with a pelvic binder so that we're not having to do unnecessary additional rolls um, to then get the pelvic binder onto the patient. So these are the sorts of things. To the point where a patient receipt area, I would even delay getting the patient out by 30 seconds to have that patient receipt area ready to go because I know that at the back end of the patient coming out, I've probably saved us six minutes by not having to move them a second time or roll them a second time. But again, it's the same theme throughout. It's just trying to be one, two, and on a really good job, six or seven steps ahead of the patient so that when they do what you're predicting they'll do, it's not a shock and you can step up to the plate and you go, yeah, we're ready for that. And everyone just sort of looks at each other and goes, oh, yeah, just grab it. And you, and you do what you've planned and you do what you've discussed. Gold. Okay. We've got this poor lady out. She's got bilateral arterial tourniquets on her lower limbs because she had significant exsanguination from open tip fibs. You've got a single IV line in plus a humeral IO in and she's extricated via a spine board onto a stretcher with a pelvic binder in place. Primary surveys revealed obvious surgical emphysema and diminished chest movement on one side with hypoxia. So we think she's probably got a tension pneumothorax from unilateral chest injury. The abdomen's fairly distended. She doesn't have any signs of head injury or focal neurology, but she's definitely got a depressed conscious level, presumably from shock. And we're still having trouble getting a blood pressure. She does have a, a, a central pulse with a tachycardia. So we've got a bunch of things to do before she's safe to move, haven't we? We've got this tension between getting her to hospital, but getting her there alive. And there's a number of things we want to do all at once, but we can't. So how are you going to coordinate your team to get stuff done? And how do we make sure those interventions don't make her worse? Yeah, so for us, obviously, you've talked about her decreased level of consciousness and these significant chest injuries. So we know, and we probably knew the minute that we laid eyes on this patient, that this patient needed a definitive airway and we're probably going to achieve that by doing an RSI. Within our workplace, we have very, very choreographed RSI procedures. We have kits that are set up for basically for us to open a zip, fold it open, pull out two items that are actually going to be put into the patient and we do a checklist to make sure that we're all on the same page and this should be able to be achieved within minutes. But to be able to do that procedure, we actually need to make sure that the patient's anaesthetised and optimised both hemodynamically and that we've actually been able to oxygenate them and ventilate them to a point where when we, you know, remove the whatever ineffective respiratory drive they've got, that we're not going to actually kill the patient in this process. So we need to afford ourselves if we need to buy a couple of minutes to actually preload the patient with some blood because we do carry it, well, then you need to consciously say, even if we're ready to go for the RSI, we just need two more minutes just to preload and get some blood into this patient. It's funny, if you think this patient's tensioning, I think it's a really fine line between, I think the patient would have to be absolutely completely obtunded and unconscious for you to actually decompress that definitively with a finger thoracostomy. So I think that we would probably do a temporising measure of a needle thoracostomy just to buy us, you know, that little bit of hopefully potential improved uh, respiratory effort um, and lung function on that side so that we can actually then move toward the RSI more safely. And then you can actually formalise both of the finger thoracostomies afterward. You know, if the patient actually does become completely obtunded and unconscious and you're losing output, well, then you may need to actually decompress the chest at that point. 
Nice. So I, I love that spending time to hemodynamically optimize before anesthetizing the patient. Yeah, you hear so so many stories about oh the patient was too sick for an anesthetic, but um, sometimes patient any patient can be anesthetized no matter how sick they are. It's, it's how you do it that avoids killing them. Jeff, you are an anesthetist as well as a trauma director and retrievalist. What are your thoughts on this? I, I just want to try and highlight the incredible humble nature of Libby in the fact that she's talking about doing all these sorts of things and identifying the process of doing them. But she's also a master of getting other people that are skilled to do that, do their skills and supervise them doing it so it's safe while all other simultaneous actions are being done, kit dumping done, supervising the extrication, getting the area sorted out, having the onward logistics of transport, talking to the air crew, working out our destination Libby's doing all this all at the same time and I've seen her do it it's amazing and 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 utilizing the crews on scene that are experts at doing certain skills keeps them involved it's the hearts and minds of the crews that are on there so that the hems crew is not coming in and just taking over and swifting you know swiftly taking a patient away from them but using their skills to get simultaneous action happening is remarkable and that's the thing that I think makes a massive difference pre-hospitally that we have a massive amount to learn sometimes in hospital is that process of adequate role delegation, simultaneous action with a forward trajectory that's always moving forward to what happens next in this patient's care. I think that's a remarkable thing that I think we probably gloss over far too much. And Libby's far too humble to be able to you know, say that deliberately, but I think it's important that we highlight that. In regards to the whole pre-hospital anaesthetic thing, these, these are patients that are, a hemodynamic compromise that we're taking over their airway, we're giving significant physiologically deranging drugs, and that process that Libby talked about of trying to correct that physiology or fixing the physiological milieu before you disturb it with the other stuff is a key thing that I don't think really gets highlighted in pre-hospital RSIs too much. We need to make sure we know where we're at and what we're going to do if we overcook it and what we're going to do next. And uh, it's a key thing, I think, that we've started focusing on more in the last decade with pre-hospital anesthesia. Right, Libs, um, we've secured the airway. You've, you've popped a tube in. You've got good end tidal. The doc's done a left-sided thoracostomy with improvement in SATs, and we have a blood pressure now. We're getting the patient packaged. Everything's splinted. We've got some direct pressure on open wounds. We've got everything we can. I'm interested in both on scene and en route What's your kind of transfusion strategy? Because it's not just all about red cells, is it? What are, what are the options available to you to just optimize that hemostasis? So for us within our service, we have red cells and we have plasma and then we have obviously uh, crystalloids. So um, and it, that's what we have on us. But hopefully with this patient, as I said, activating other blood to be brought to the scene so that we can start actually looking at other products so that we're not, you know, overloading these patients with just red blood cells, which is often the case. And then they hit the emergency department. They start from the beginning again and they start with red cells again um, as opposed to moving to different products so that we're getting the balance right. So we would be giving our red cell, a couple of bags of red cells, a couple of bags of our plasma. We'd be popping some TXA in with that. And depending on where we are, if we're near, you know, big hospitals, we're going to be getting massive transfusion protocols delivered to us on a helipad, you know, on the way to hospital or driven to scene, you know, in the back of a police car. 
Uh, if we're further afield, then we'll, we'll accept whatever the sort of outlying regional blood banks are willing to give us and we'll try and sort of balance out which order we're giving these blood products to our patient. Having said that, this patient's going to a major trauma hospital. The major trauma hospital is going to be able to hopefully green light us directly to theatres. They're going to be able to meet us on the pad with more blood products and they're going to be able to actually have blood products waiting in the operating theatre. Having said that, the only way that happens is through early notification and by us making exceptionally clear that we think that it's imperative that this happens with no delay through an emergency department and we can just whiz straight into the um, operating theatres. And I think that, um, you know, sometimes that happens really well and at other times the system isn't quite there but it's pretty damn exciting when it does happen. And I, Jeff and I have been a part of a job where he was actually working within the hospital and I delivered to him a horribly, horribly unwell patient, secondary to uh, bleeding. And, Jeff, I can't remember how, how many products that patient ended up having, uh, but quite, an, quite a remarkable, remarkable for me. I think that's a career job um, the fact that that patient got to hospital alive at all and then the care that they received with absolutely no d- delay is a career job for me. And I think, uh, Brian, you had a similar one that you took into Nat's hospital, didn't you, straight whizzing through the ED from pre-hospital through to theatre where you know the links in the chain lined up nicely that day. Is that right? Yeah, I had a uh, 16, 17-year-old male motorbike accident into a big truck front on and had an open pelvis a lower limb facing completely the wrong way around prone gcs5 blood streaming down the road and we did some very quick actions in terms of you know reduction of the lower limb fracture pelvic binder more vascular access started some blood and my paramedic was ready for the RSI or arrival to ready for RSI was about four to five minutes because of um, that simultaneous action that Jeff uh, was talking about. There was a clear um, trajectory for this patient, but also momentum required um, to keep moving forward and get him, getting him uh, anesthetized safely. So this patient had two units of red cells prior to his RSI. His initial blood pressure was 50 to 60 systolic, came up to about 90 to 100 uneventful RSI sats went from 80 to 100 and then we had to road him down to the helicopter his open pelvis wound was still bleeding so we packed that with hemostatic gauze and then in flight was a transient responder at that point we'd only had three red cells didn't have time to activate a pre-hospital MTP and called ahead to the hospital where Nat works and activated our code crimson procedure which allowed him go not alone direct um, into CT to IR, but also facilitated an MTP. And more importantly, it facilitates senior decision makers and proceduralists to be there at the time. And that's exactly what occurred. So he had a rapid CT, which didn't show any head injury or any other major uh, chest injury or, or intra-abdominal injury. He did a renal injury, but it wasn't um, killing him. And he, we went direct into IR. And uh, we cut a little window in his pelvic binder and he had his ileex embolized. It was fascinating to watch as soon as the embolization was done, how his blood pressure just bounced and responded. Yeah, this fellow made a recovery. He had obviously a long road to recovery. He had a a lower GI injury from his open pelvic fracture, but uh, completely recovered. 
So it's nice to see those examples where there's a patient that would have died on scene if it weren't for the pre-hospital interventions, but then the work's just beginning and they need urgent hospital interventions and to be able to see those links in the chain join up to get those things happening with senior decision makings and minimizing unnecessary stops in ED, radiology and so on. Uh, that's that's a good day when all that lines up, and we've all been lucky enough to see that. And just finally on the pre-hospital thing, Libby, as part of your hemostasis, you you guys give calcium with your TXA and blood and plasma, don't you as well? Yeah, that's right. For us, obviously, that that doesn't really probably come into play in terms of what we see, but um, obviously further down the line when more products are being given, we know that um, we're we're putting the patient in good stead for there to be no complications um when they're starting to get you know more and more products transfused and uh you're quite liberal with the warming blankets in the bleeding patients i've noticed as well yeah so absolutely we need to expose the patient to look at them and see what's going on but we need to consciously make sure that we minimize the exposure so that we're not um allowing the patient to become hypothermic which is just going to make every single um, issue for this patient far far worse. So warming blankets, um, we actually try and warm the blood if time permits. Um, and I think the only instance where we wouldn't do that is if the patient ha- was actually arrested. So yeah, we're, we're pretty, um, I suppose, pedantic about trying to keep the patient warm. Uh, we'll be suffering in the back of a warm cabin in the aircraft on a hot summer's day to make sure that the patient's, you know, not getting cooled while we're melting. But um, we're not actually there for us. We're there for the patient. And, and paramedics never sweat, so that's okay. Oh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm keen that the listeners take away something from that, even if they're not involved at all in pre-hospital care, because there are going to be plenty of people out there who are not in fancy level one trauma centers or in smaller units, maybe rural units, district hospitals, who can appreciate that you can do a very tidy job with a safe anesthetic, with hemostatic resuscitation prior to that, with balanced products, keeping the patient warm, not forgetting the TXA, not forgetting the calcium, those little things. It's those marginal gains that Brian talks about, which can be achieved if you pay attention to your systems and processes and training through simulation and education. Um, if, if you guys can do it pre-hospital, it can be done in any hospital when the right will is there. You would have heard Libby talking about a patient receipt area and getting the place prepared for the patient to come out on with a presumed trajectory of resuscitation, which includes intubation. It is crucial in these patients to maximize their physiology as best you can before you give a very dose-adjusted anesthetic. And likely, there may be people out there who have not necessarily thought about that and how to do that. And I think it's uh, just just a point worth reiterating and very important to get that product. And if you don't have it, get some fluid into them before you anesthetize them. And if you're anesthetizing them, use a low dose of anesthetic and a high dose of muscle relaxant. I think that just hearing both Brian and Jeff and Libby talk about the cases that they've been involved in just made me really reflect on what it is that makes those cases memorable. And that brings me back to the benefits of all of our critical care colleagues spending some time in the pre-hospital environment. And I don't say that lightly because I know that not everybody's going to do it as a career move, but I think there's something really powerful in 
being able to understand the communications and that implicit understanding of what's been done in the pre-hospital environment. I think before I worked in pre-hospital, I was maybe guilty of judging and second guessing my colleagues. And now that doesn't happen so much. If they tell me something is the the way that it is, then I expect that. But it's also given me an appreciation of pre-hospital processes that what's possible, what's reasonable, what's appropriate. And I think that just all the things that Libby has said have, have really kind of keyed into that. Why these cases went well was that people appreciated all that hard work that's done in the pre-hospital environment. And they're not trying to reinvent the, the the wheel for that particular patient and go over everything again, but they're taking that as read. And I, I just wanted to make a brief call out for everyone to consider spending some time having some pre-hospital experience. Totally. So, Carl, you're the lucky winner of today's emergency physician in charge badge. And uh, Libby has flown her patient to you. So she did think about activating code crimson, which in our service means going straight from pre-hospital through to the operating room. But she's had a responder to hemostatic resuscitation. Patient's now got a blood pressure of a perhaps falsely reassuring 105 systolic And uh, so she's going to bring the patient to the emergency department for more diagnostics. So your patient arrives intubated, good end tidal, an open thoracostomy with a bit of blood oozing out, but not much. Pelvic binder on, blood pressure 105 systolic, heart rate 120, some splinted dressed lower limb wounds. You've got the luxury of a trauma team that you're in charge of and all the facilities you want of a level one trauma center to start with. What's going through your mind as this patient gets wheeled through the door? and the not very sweaty paramedics do the handover? The, the first thing that's going through my head is that these are unusual patients, the, the patients that uh, are extremely unwell coming into the trauma centre. Even in systems with relatively high volumes, most trauma patients are not bleeding to death, don't need immediate surgical intervention. So that small subgroup of patients that do um, really do test the systems. And the ED resuscitation priorities for this patient are going to depend on what pre-hospital care they've received, and it sounds like they've had a um, very advanced level care. Um, the patient's hemodynamics and the response to therapy, but most of all, whether you think there's ongoing non-compressible hemorrhage. So for me, that's the key deciding feature as to whether this patient should spend any significant time in the emergency department being resuscitated, or they should be rapidly moved through uh, to either diagnostic imaging for an urgent CT or through to operating theatre or interventional radiology. And the time in ED has to be well spent. And I think that's the wonderful crossover from pre-hospital training or pre-hospital experience that you understand that there is a triage of procedures that needs to occur whenever you're managing these very sick patients, that you do the minimum that you need the most effective, meaningful interventions, and then you move the patient on. So the time spent in emergency department could be zero in certain setting, settings. Um, this patient sounds like they've improved, and so we might have some time to get some more imaging uh, as a priority. So the other thing I think that's really um, worth reflecting on is that the moments before the patient arrives are absolutely golden to their resuscitation in the emergency department. So the few minutes of pre-warning that I get have to be used effectively to bring together the usual ad hoc team that we have in an emergency department and create an effective force out of that team. Unlike in pre-hospital where I'm usually working with one in, one individual very closely and that I know 
well and work routinely with. In emergency, we have the luxury usually of many people. And in fact, that's an, a harder position, harder situation uh, to actually effectively and rapidly uh, direct. So I think the job of the ED trauma director and trauma team leader in bleeding patients is actually a very challenging one. I find it um, highly bandwidth uh, utilising. But Carl, um, you don't have to worry too much because, as you know, trauma is a surgical disease. And in some parts of the world, the the surgeons will come down and and tell you how to run the trauma. So uh, is it a surgical disease? Well, look, I think it's it's become more and more a, a medical condition in that most patients, uh, certainly in, in the setting of New South Wales, Australia, where we have predominance of blunt trauma um, and very low rates of, of patients requiring urgent procedures, uh, most patients actually do just require meticulous critical care. So um, in New South Wales, for example, in about 3,500 patients a year with an ISS greater than 12, which means they're quite severely injured, uh, they have only a, a laparotomy rate of about 4 to 5%. So that's kind of reflects how unusual the acutely bleeding patient uh, with non-compressible hemorrhage is. Um, the thing that I loved um, about Libya was just thinking at all times about the patient's onward journey, what they needed in the hospital. And that's that idea of seamless care from pre-hospital into hospital rather than everything having to restart on arrival in emergency. And so where systems are in place that, um, allow that seamless care. I think patients get much better, much better looked after than if there's this sort of stuttery or serial uh, re-examinations. Uh, um, and the the key thing for this patient is, if I think they're bleeding, I really do need the surgeons. So uh, every interaction I have with the surgeons before today makes a big difference for the time when I really do need them, even though it's a rare thing. Occasionally, we really need them. This patient, if they have non-compressible bleeding, uh, they need a surgeon and I need to make that happen. And as I say, every interaction I've had with the surgeons in the intervening period, in the previous resuscitations, makes a big difference on how that goes. So um, I, I really focus on that. Well, Libby handed you a patient that she said had a blood pressure of 105, but your nurses have just measured the blood pressure and it's, it's actually 95 now. So maybe this is a transient responder. How are you going to decide where this patient's going, what to do with the tools at your disposal in the ED? Yeah, look, I think, I think this is one big issue that um, we sometimes do get wrong and that um, needs to be done better. It's recognising the bleeding patient. We, I think there's a tendency to falsely get reassurance from single numbers on a non-invasive blood pressure whilst not taking into account the full picture of the patient. And there are um, a number of different ways we can assess patients for bleeding. We can assess blood that we think has been spilled by handover or um, by sites of bleeding. We can investigate directly point-of-care ultrasound bleeding into the chest or abdomen. We have other means of assessing patients' perfusion, skin colour, temperature, uh, particularly where we don't get good SATs traces. I'm very suspicious of severe hemorrhage that's being compensated for or blood pressures that's not recording and then a random number in the middle of it. End tidal CO2 has been used um, and even perfusion indexes on sort of SATS probes. Um, all together with the patient in front of us, I think, become a global assessment. And if the patient, I think, have, we have, if we have time to go to CT, in most advanced trauma systems, CT can be done rapidly. It's usually co-located or very close to, and if the trauma team goes with the patient, we can get some answers to some things very quickly. If, on the other hand, I think the patient is uh, more peri-arrest or non-responsive, then going directly to, to theatre if we think there's an, uh, free bleeding in the abdomen or chest. 
the patient in front of you decides that. The unnecessary delays in emergency, though, need to be absolutely looked after. And I find the keys to achieving short times in the emergency department are really setting the agenda from the moment that you're with your trauma team, that giving them a realistic time frame. So maybe five to 10 minutes, we need this patient out of here, uh, having done only what we need to do, keeping uh, the procedures to the things they need, not the nice-to-haves or the the dressing or the icing on the cake. We want to have the patient um, only get what they need and then move forward uh, to the, the operating theatre or interventional radiology. That does take quite a lot of uh, leadership. The, on the other hand, when I'm working in an emergency department, I'm often leading teams of registrars or trainees. I'm very careful that these sorts of cases are not the ones that are ideal for the first junior registrar to be teach, to be um, learning how to team lead on. These cases require the full gamut of human factors and, and often the senior leadership to achieve good care. Controversial, controversial. How are they going to learn? What happens at night? Yeah, look, I think that's a good question. There, there are ways of bringing responsibility on slowly with gradation and care, not but not throwing junior staff into these sorts of sick patients scenarios early on. And I think you need to know what person you're, you're teaching before you let them have the, this patient's care in their hands. Fantastic. Okay, so your team has popped in a, an intercostal catheter through the thoracostomy incision. A little bit of blood draining, uh, but not much. Uh, your EFAST reveals uh, quite considerable amount of peritoneal free fluid, and the pelvic X-ray reveals an open book pelvis, even visible with the perfectly placed pelvic binder. And the patient's blood pressure is now 70 systolic. You haven't yet gone to CT. The surgeon wants a CT. You're the chief there. You've got to make some decisions, get some things happening. Yeah, so this is the um, the eternal challenge of the, the bleeding patient. Is the site of bleeding, do we think, the abdomen? Or is this retroperitoneal bleeding from pelvic fracture with a little bit of contained blood in the abdomen as a result? Because that does change... Uh, how you manage the patient. And so um, a frankly positive fast in this patient, I think, um, particularly if there was a pre-hospital fast that was positive, is a very straightforward decision. They go straight to theatre um, in our settings. If you are able to get a CT to delineate the, that question, then that's um, a valuable thing in certain uh, settings. But in most places that I've worked, this patient needs to go to theatre and, and have a surgeon attend to their cause of bleeding. And my job as the trauma team leader is to make that happen. Right. Well, we might get that patient to theatre under Jeff's care shortly, but um, I'm going to get Brian to pipe in as a current trauma lead in his current hospital and former trauma director for what size area of Australia, Brian? (laughs) Um, An area the size of Germany, but it only had 300,000 people. So, yeah, geographically challenging. And only about four Germans. <laughs> Can I just comment on a couple of things? One is the blood pressure and the pulse rate. So we did a review of over a 1,000 pre-hospital blood transfusions by aeromedical teams, and we found that the odds ratio of death, if you had a single systolic at the scene of less than 100, were 14. So odds ratio of 14 if you had a single systolic of less than 100. And there are still trauma centers that use the 90 millimeters of mercury cutoff for severe trauma. And this has been borne out in UK TARN data as well. And often that single blood pressure that we had at the scene and now they've been adequately or transiently resuscitated is ignored. 
And I think that's one of the biggest gotchas for ED teams or trauma teams when they arrive and they see a pre-hospital case that's been brought in and has been resuscitated with some blood products and now they have a blood pressure of 95 or 105 and they think everything's fine. The other thing, and which Carol alluded to, is end-tidal CO2. I think in the extremely shocked case where you've got poor SATs trace uh, related to perfusion, the blood pressure cuff is not working because of its uh, algorithm. In a mechanically ventilated patient at this at a set rate, end-tidal CO2 is so important because you do see improvement in end-tidal CO2 when you transfuse a patient. When you give them a bolus of blood product, it comes up. When they start bleeding again, it goes down. So I think it's probably the most underappreciated marker of perfusion and shock in an intubated trauma patient. Nicely put. And of course, there are a couple of studies, I, th- I think, including US data showing that mortality, if you have a graph of mortality versus systolic blood pressure on scene, uh, the inflection point where it sharply increases mortality in one study was below 105 in adults and another 110. So that absolutely supports what you're saying is traditional definitions of hypotension in trauma are massive underestimates. And if I think any of us podcasting today see a sick trauma adult with a systolic of 105, we're very worried. Yeah, if they're awake, if they're awake and in pain and their systolic's 105, they are profoundly shocked until proven otherwise. So, Natalie, coincidentally, in the pediatric emergency department, there's a child with a similar injury pattern. Are you going to do exactly the same stuff? I mean, we all know, and I know this for a fact because I'm married to a pediatrician, that children are just small adults and we can entirely extrapolate the entire adult literature to children. So you just copy Carl, right? That's that's a recipe for success. Copy Carl. Everything's good. Or kids, anything different in pediatric trauma we should be aware of? I'm going to say first off that A, Carl is my boss, and B, (laughs) copy Carl is a good rule for life. Um, (laughs) It's tricky. It's tricky with kids. And I think the first thing that comes into my head is that we, we tend to overlook the fact that kids have a really relatively small circulating volume. So what we're really bad at estimating blood losses on scene, but if you're seeing lots of blood on scene, it's probably really significant for kids. Generally, they're thought of as having a a blood volume of between 70 and 90 milliliters per kilogram. So if you think of your 10 kilo one-year-old, that's a, a, a circulating volume of 800 mils. And that's really not a great deal. So those significant blood losses on scene can be really significant for kids. And then add into the fact that they've got this perfect physiology that just works exactly as it was designed to do, not like all the adults we know who have messed it up with various vices of life. So they tend to compensate. And the image that always comes into my head is of um, Wiley Coyote running off a cliff and kind of continuing to run with no cliff underneath him and then plummeting off. So I think that's Talking significant my language too. Talking I know, I know. Not, not just Wiley Coyotes and Cliffs in the same sentence. Um, but I think when we when we think about permissive hypotension in adults, we can't really apply that to kids. When we're seeing hypotension in kids, it usually means they've gone way too far off that cliff edge, that they're no longer able to compensate and we need to be taking that really seriously. The problem that we have is that there's not a great deal of data. Thankfully, that major trauma is relatively rare in kids. It is almost exclusively blunt trauma, except for geographical areas where penetrating trauma happens. And that tends to be stabbings in areas of 
London and Manchester, where I used to live, um, and in the US and the horrible spate of shootings that happen in the US. But the, the majority of stuff that we see is blunt trauma in kids. Therefore, that we have to, we do have to extrapolate from adult data. Some of the best data we've got has come from war zones and research studies at Camp Bastion have told us a lot about what happens in pediatric trauma and particularly with blast injuries and other blunt trauma mechanisms. But that's really difficult because how applicable is that to civilian populations? We just don't know. What we also struggle with is definitions in pediatrics. So the, the research that talks about massive hemorrhage tends to talk about 40 mils per kilo of volume being given as replacement at any time is classified as massive transfusion, but that's effectively half of a child's circulating volume. So if you gave it at an adult, that's not enormously surprising that that's a, that's a big deal. So I think it's really, it's difficult. We don't have the data. We don't have the information. We have to do the best we can, but there are some things we need to think about a little bit differently. I think what we do know is that coagulopathy is an issue, just like it is in adults. Um, and early coagulopathy is a really bad sign. Um, there's some data from particular papers that shows that coagulopathy happens in around 13% of cases, but that if you have a high ISS and hypotension, that's associated with co coagulopathy and high mortality. And that if you have a head injury as part of your constellation of injuries, then you have a fourfold increase in uh, mortality in those cases. What we don't know is how we can correct that coagulopathy. I think we're probably going to talk a little bit later about hopefully about the um, itactic paper, but I think things like Rotem and Teg, it's been postulated that they could be used in kids in this way that they are with adults in giving targeted product resuscitation, but the evidence just isn't there. So, and I'm not sure that we're going to see it with the way that things are. What we also know is that uh, hypocalcemia is very common and we should definitely correct that. Um, and we should definitely give tranexamic acid in the same way that we do with adults. And the way that I remember tranexamic acid dosing is that it is the same as paracetamol. So 15 milligrams per kilogram up to a gram, which is the adult dose, just like paracetamol. And that's nice and easy to remember. Oh, I like that. I'm going to remember that. Good. That's a top tip. And my thoughts on pediatric trauma are that even though trauma is a major, if not the most common cause of death in young children, it's actually still a rare disease. Yeah. Um, and we, one would assume that pediatricians, pediatric emergency physicians who work in pediatric centers are going to have the expertise in this. But because it's a rare disease, they're not seeing it every day. And there is a role, I think, for the generalist emergency physician who does see trauma every day to offer their expertise in the, in the management of, of sick, uh, traumatized children. We make assumptions about where the expertise lies, but we have to think about most of the trauma management paradigms that we use in adults are applicable to children. And there is a role for sharing expertise and experience there. And right at the beginning, you flagged the, the idea of the child with haemophilia with an epistaxis. And that comes from a real case that I saw of a, of a child with a coagulation problem who was bleeding and referred to the hematologists. And the hematologist did all sorts of things to try to correct their coagulation, but nobody thought about that early step of turning off the tap. And I think that's where we as generalists can come into the picture and say, let's manage this with sensible principles. Let's think about not just correcting the coagulopathy, but let's think about doing our basic bleeding management. Let's stop the bleeding by whatever that takes. And all this kid needed was some sort of ENT input to stop their nosebleed. But nobody had done that. And by the time that it was done, they needed a, a massive transfusion. 
The only real gotcha that I come across frequently is underestimating head injuries in children. So we always hear in adults that, yes, scalp injuries can bleed a lot, but an isolated head injury shouldn't cause you significant hemodynamic compromise. And in really small kids, that's not true. They can have significant subgallial hemorrhage. They can have significant intracranial hemorrhage if they've got unfused cranial sutures. And I've seen that underestimated. So a kid with a simple skull fracture can bleed significantly both into their head and into the subgallial space. And if that's not addressed for a period of time, for example, the time it takes for them to be transferred for a small, from a small hospital to a pediatric tertiary centre, they can find themselves in significant hemodynamic compromise. And I've seen tiny babies needing massive transfusion protocols to manage that. Not that they're massive by the standards that we would judge adult massive transfusions, but they're still significant. And blood in in itself is not a risk-free product to administer. And we should think about that seriously. And if we can avoid the need for it in kids, we should do that. Carl, you have successfully activated a crowed crimson from the ED due to your patient's deteriorating hemodynamics, positive fast scan, and uh, concerning pelvic x-ray. Jeff, you're the lead anaesthetist, and it helps also that you're trauma director, but uh, you've had this call from Carl who says, dude, help, theatre, patient, now, make it happen. Tell me about the challenges, the hurdles, how you overcome them, and uh, what you've learned and what you can share. There's no particular challenges or hurdles whatsoever in designing a system or trying to set this up. It's very straightforward. Like, you know, it hasn't, you know, prematurely grayed me or my hair or anything else. Look, this is this is the critical junction, I think, of the whole process of this early patient journey. We've been advancing pre-hospital care for many, many years and, and we've been speeding up transitions out of emergency departments. This is a, a lifetime of work rolled up into a small little microcosm. We've already talked about volume of practice and everything else. This is becoming much rarer, uh, urgent surgical disease and getting surgical buy-in and getting appropriate processes and systems in place to be able to make this happen and make it happen swiftly and in a coordinated way is the most difficult thing, I think, in the whole hospital system at the moment. So what what we've been doing over the last probably two to five years is trying to get senior level clinicians involved early, make the decisions about going to theatre and having a process in place to know what they're going to do and when they're going to do it, what cavity they're going to open, who's going to get involved, and to have that shared common goal process going on. And Libby's referred to a case that she was involved with that she brought to a hospital I work in, and and, and this has been a, a evolution in process, and and it's it's incredibly complex. But the the main points that I think are worthwhile going over and talking about in this podcast is you need to have a definitive team leader, and that team leader needs to have accountability, and they need to be involved in the patient's care, and if at all possible, the team leader or the the, the person that's going to team lead in theatre should be in the emergency department as part of the treating clinical team of senior clinicians facilitating that transfer out of ET to theatres. It is so much harder when you arrive 15, 25, 35, 45 minutes into this patient's care in the hospital. If you were there early and you are part of that decision-making process, it's much easier. The second thing is you need to rally the troops and provide irrefutable evidence to the team about what you want to do, where you want to go, and how you're going to get things done. 
So you might have to repeat the fast when they're in ED to show that definitively to the surgical team that's in front of you that that's the cavity that you might need to open to be able to control the bleeding. And, and highlighting the meaningful interventions of the patient as they arrive to the emergency department to then facilitate them getting to the theatre is, I think, time well spent. Jeff, I need to ask a question here because the picture in my mind is beautiful. Have you, as an anaesthetist, been in the emergency department and repeated the fast scan to show the surgeons that they need to do surgery? Yeah, certainly, multiple times. And, 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 and if it's not me or if it's not me that's doing it, then I encourage the people around them to find the expert in the department to do that to then show the surgical team the evidence. So it's not always me doing it. I might delegate that to somebody else. But if I need to, then I, I feel as though I can. And, and, and again, it's about transference of skills from pre-hospital care to the operating theatres. But, but the other thing about... And is it fair to say, and I say this mm. in all seriousness, that being reasonable people that want the best for the patient, when the surgeons see that positive fast, they go, yeah, sure. fair enough. Yeah. And, you, and you present it with the picture of what their physiology is at the time of showing the picture that makes that process. The, the numbers themselves or the, the hemoglobin that constantly gets asked, it's, they're, they're, in isolation they mean nothing. It's the patient in front of you and what you want to do and how you're going to achieve it and facilitating them, looking after them, saying that we're going on this journey together and this is what we need to do makes things happen. And, that, and I think that's the key point of the team leader in that process. If there's a transition of team leadership from the ED to the anaesthetist, if they're going to be the team leader, that seamless pathway to be able to get things done is a key feature of what Libby's described in her logistics discussion pre-hospitally. You, you have to be two steps ahead of the game. You have to be forecasting what this patient's going to need and what's going to happen next and make it happen. I will ultrasound people. I will put needles in people. I will get access. I will do stuff. But ideally, it's a hands-off team leadership process that you're getting the experts to do their thing. And that continues when you get to theatre. It's not about micromanaging these small teams of things that happen around you. You need to be the overall team leader with good situational awareness of what's happening and let the experts do what they do really well. And one of the key things that we've facilitated in, in the hospital they're working at the moment is getting the experts to do the things they do really well. Getting the cardiac anaesthetist in to put a toe in and to get central access, large central access, is stuff they can do in one minute that you're not relying on a more junior medical staff to be able to do that might take them 15 minutes. And that that time saving that's done by by empowering them to be able to do the things they do really well quickly makes massive gains. Get the consultant surgeon to open up the belly and do a, a skin-to-skin laparotomy in 20 minutes, packing all four quarters. That makes a massive difference to the patient's care. Supporting them, empowering them to be able to do what they do well, not micromanaging them, but getting that forward trajectory of what's going on, having shared common goals and having a process of where we're heading next. Having limited times in theatre, and knowing what you're going to be doing. Are you going to CT or are you going to ICU for more stabilisation afterwards? Minimising operating theatre time and having a forward trajectory of what's happening. Jeff, can I just ask, very, it's a fascinating domain you're talking about there. How do you facilitate them? Have you got any tricks that you've used over the years to facilitate them doing that? Uh, it's very hard in the initial sense of setting up a system to change sceptics into supporters. But I think one of the main things that I've found 
repeatedly over time is when you get repeatedly good outcomes by getting them involved, they become supporters. They understand the process if you explain and you share the mental model and you tell them what you're aiming to try and get for this patient. This is the sickest patient in the whole state or the whole country at this very time. And I would very much like your expert skills to be able to do X, Y, or Z at the moment so that we can all work together to save this patient's life. That sort of empowering hearts and minds type process, it sounds incredibly soft and it sounds stuff that's not going to come out of my mouth, but that's the stuff I say. And that's the stuff that I think makes a massive difference. We are all working here together at any time of the day to save this patient's life. I'm not disempowering the junior staff. They're all still involved, but the senior people need to make the senior decisions. Jeff, what I'm interested in is that these patients don't turn up when all the clinicians are sitting down twiddling their thumbs. There's other stuff going on in theatres. They're just about to open another abdomen and it's out of hours and the limited resources and you know what are the practicalities of the logistics of making stuff happen when you've got competing resources and you know there's a sick patient in ed that needs to go to theater uh, but there are several other services that have got in their minds equally or more important priorities that require that theater time that uh, anesthesia time uh, and so on what, what what do you do about that i i think Having a system in place or planning for that system is the first thing. Identifying these patients, having a name, having a process, the Code Crimson process, which we've talked about previously, is a is an empowering process to say this is the sickest patient at the moment. This is our priority of what we need to get done. They're going to go to the standard theatre or a hybrid theatre each time. They're going to have the same process each time to be able to save their life. Everyone's going to get involved. All of the consultants are going to be called. They're not going to interrogate the call. If they're called for a code crimson, they start coming in. They, they don't ask what the story is or do I really need to come in. There's been in principle agreement with all of the senior staff involved in these processes that they come in and they arrive. When they arrive in a staccato fashion, they need to be briefed. They need to be directed as to what they, their value-adding process is going to be. And they need to get in and get on the tools immediately so that they can do what they do best. And that process is facilitated by the trauma team leader or the team leader in theatres. Um, and, and that person needs to be able to do that succinctly and positively to be able to get involvement and sort of ownership of that individual that then turns up. And that's an incredibly complex thing to do when there's lots of moving parts. We, we often have... 25 to 35 people in theatre during a code crimson at the moment and they are big, big leviathans to be able to control. And so by having a presence, by controlling your assertive communication skills, but also having vulnerability to allow the team to be able to highlight things that you might be missing, having regular pause points to be able to make sure that you're getting surgical progress of what's happening with the, the, the surgical uh, progress of the the patient's care and also keeping a track of where we're at physiology wise you want to know uh, how many units of products this patient's been having and where we're heading and how much longer we're going to be here and what the next step's going to be is there going to be another cavity opened are we going to be doing endovascular treatment and what are we doing next all while not micromanaging the expert teams that you've assembled doing their job in addition to that, there's a couple of key traps that I've identified in the last couple of years. The first thing is, if you delay getting your definitive cross-match for these patients, 
it can significantly hamper blood banks' ability to be able to accurately cross-match these patients. If they've already had two units of O-negative blood and some uh, extended-life plasma of A or AB um, uh, grouping blood, and then they've had another eight to ten units of O-negative blood or O-positive blood, then that might make this mosaic cross-match process even more complex for blood bank. It might delay getting more product. And we've certainly emptied out our hospital blood banks and giving 60, 80, 120 units of blood products. The second thing uh, is regular and repeated serial rotums. And we've been starting to do this that really changes the nature of how we're doing targeted coagulopathy management in theatres. It's not just giving every pack that arrives from the massive transfusion protocols these days. We're actively dictating to blood bank the products that we want with the point of care testing. And I think that's a massive change to how we're doing this. But one of the big things I want to try and avoid is cyclical hyper-resuscitation. That is where you give tons of products their physiology changes dramatically. And then when you have less supply of products, then it goes straight back to their set point of very low blood pressure and tachycardia. And I think that that's potentially worse sometimes than just trying to keep a steady ship going towards surgical definitive control of bleeding before you get to the organ perfusion stage of the damage control resuscitation. And I'm lucky enough to work in the same emergency department as Brian, who's taught me a lot about Rotem, and that's now standard in our department in a bleeding patient early on. But I have to say, I don't feel like I have a fantastic grip of all the recent evidence on what blood products and when TXA, cryo, fibrinogen concentrate, all this stuff, there's so many papers coming out every few months. How do we keep on top of it? Brian, can you do us all a solid favor and bring us all up to speed on what we need to know as resuscitationists in terms of blood products and adjunctive treatments in hemorrhage and uh, what and when and why without too many confidence intervals and p-values, please? Gosh, how long have you got? <laughs> That'll take some time. No, but I suppose if you look at the history of blood product resuscitation, we began way back, uh, giving whole blood. So back in World War II, they were giving whole blood. Then they forgot about that in, in the Vietnam War and started giving crystalloid. And then when post-Vietnam War, when they decided to give blood products again, they split it into component therapy. And we've been kind of stuck in component therapy since. Having said that, there is now a recent move over the last, say, four or five years to look at low, tighter, O-positive whole blood and that is certainly something that is coming around the corner because it would make more sense to resuscitate the patient with whole blood rather than components and all the issues associated with trying to store, freeze, thaw, warm uh, components. So I think that's an area that's increasing all the time. Interestingly, with there's, there is some concern of uh, you know alloimmunization with O-positive whole blood, but it's actually not borne out in real life in terms of the numbers of rhesus negative women with severe trauma who end up in an issue is not significant so it's not felt to be an issue uh, a problem one of the other interesting areas is platelets and you'll all be kind of pretty aware that in the hospital the pl the, there never there never seems to be any platelets around 
and it's hard to get platelets. But also the platelets that we have in the hospital available to us are actually kept at 22 degrees. And they're on this kind of thing that jiggles them around and keeps them at 22 degrees. And interestingly, platelets that are kept at 22 degrees are not as effective as cold stored platelets. So you can actually get platelets stored at four degrees, which seem to be more effective at actually plugging the hole. They don't last as long in vivo, but they plug the hole faster. So I think there's certainly going to be some move towards cold stored platelets, which are stored at four degrees, which potentially has pre-hospital application, which would be relevant to us. Another, I think, bigger area um, that's coming is fibrinogen concentrate and plasma. Now, as you know, we won't go through the trials, but there seems to be some improvement in outcome in giving people plasma. We have extended life plasma ourselves. Other countries have freeze-dried plasma or lyophilized plasma. And we're not quite sure why patients do better or survive with plasma. And it's likely it's got something to do with the endothelium and protecting the endothelial barrier and decreasing leaking in these organs and essentially multi-organ failure. So patients with severe hemorrhagic shock develop leaky endotheliums, multi-organ failure and die. Now, interestingly, in vitro studies, patients who are given fibrinogen concentrate are less likely to develop endothelial leaking. And that is a relatively new finding. They've done studies in vitro as well, because obviously we we have been thinking that plasma does that role. But when you take fibrinogen concentrate out of plasma, it does not have the same glycocalyx or endothelial protection without the fibrinogen. In my mind, I think we're heading towards fibrinogen concentrate. There's a big trial going on in the UK at the moment, which you're all familiar with, which is Cryostat 2. Cryostat 2 has recruited about 70-80% of its patients and it's giving uh, severe trauma patients upfront cryoprecipitate rather than the standard packs that Jeff was talking about earlier, where cryo often comes, you know, in the second or third pack. That's something we actually do in a lot of the trauma centers in Australia already. And obviously we can't bring cryo pre-hospital. Forbinogen concentrate essentially, I think, is going to be the big focus in hemostatic resuscitation in trauma over the next 5-10 years, not just because trauma patients develop hyperfibrinolysis due to coagulopathy of trauma, but because of the purported endothelial uh, protection that fibrinogen concentrate does. So based on that, it seems like we're heading towards viscoelastic testing to try and help us decide what to give to which patients without the setting of having whole blood available. So while iTactic didn't show any major difference in outcome, it didn't look at those drilled down areas that we're interested in, which is the patients who need acute surgical or acute IR management. And they're the ones we, we've been talking about this evening. Fantastic. So it's not just about replacing what's bled out. It's about protecting that endothelium and glycocalyx and preventing the subsequent multi-organ failure and endotheliopathy. Some exciting trials in progress and viscoelastic testing like TEG or Rotem is probably the way to go in the short term, despite a lack of strong current evidence to show patient-orientated outcome improvement. We've spoken a lot about a trauma patient, but I'm interested in the concept that these approaches can be applied to the non-trauma patient who is bleeding. 
Now, Brian and I currently spend a lot of time in an ED that is not a trauma center, but just <laughs> seems to see an inordinate amount of patients who are trying to bleed to death, whether it's an elderly patient on anticoagulants with a massive scalp injury or a variceal bleeder. Um, there's just a number of patients, probably several times a week, we are either doing massive transfusion or sending off a Rotem getting out a level one infuser. And my own observation is that as a trainee, I thought it was all about airway and I didn't really appreciate breathing. My ATLS course at the time told me to give two liters of crystalloid and I was happy to do that. And thanks for want of a better word to you know the combat experience we've had in wars in the Middle East. We've started to appreciate hemorrhage and trauma and the importance of hemostatic resuscitation this century and we've got better and better at, at that but we've been slow to adopt those concepts to non-traumatic bleeding so a gastroenterologist managing a variceal bleeder probably won't be as familiar with those concepts or apply those concepts and i'm interested in all you guys as a group in how your own thinking and approach has evolved over the last few years when it comes to managing bleeding patients whether it's adults or kids trauma or medicine. So Cliff, I think I think you have raised a, a great question in that we're probably seeing more medical bleeding than we are surgical bleeding in certain centers. And that reflects the elderly population, the increased sort of chronic illness that's uh, being managed. But I think that there's a, an interesting difference in that generally in medical bleeding, you have a sense or understanding of what sort of vessel is bleeding. I always Imagine in my mind what exactly is going on when someone has variceal bleeding, this portal circulation, or someone has an ectopic pregnancy and there's a, an arterial bleeding in their abdomen. I can kind of picture it and, and understand easily kind of what I need to do to resuscitate that patient. And then trauma, it's just such a more difficult situation most of the time than you know, a very straightforward thing like a AAA or a, an ectopic. So the, the challenges are, I think, very similar and the same potential benefits of addressing coagulopathy early, keeping patients warm, addressing the little things, the calcium, the potassium, still remain really important. And we can use our knowledge from trauma to, to transmit across to the medical patients. Can I share a major bugbear of mine? It's, it's my current soapbox. And that is the elderly patient on an anticoagulant who comes in following a fall and they've got a scalp wound. And the paramedics have appropriately applied a sort of turban dressing and they arrive, and then a very sensible, often senior resident notices the triage note, anticoagulants, head injury, needs a CT. And they organize a CT before examining the patient because there's a lot of patients waiting to be seen and they want to get things moving. And that's all, everyone's doing a sensible thing, trying to help the patient. And that patient goes around to CT, comes back half an hour later, their turban dressing is a bit bigger and a bit redder than it was when they first came in. The blood pressure is 80 systolic. The nurse wants to do the right thing for the patient, so goes to find the resident and says, the blood pressure is a bit low. Do you want to prescribe some fluids? And I discover that patient because someone's giving some normal saline to a patient who's bleeding to death. And I'm now trying to turn everything backwards and go, guys, wait a minute, <laughs> and get some hemorrhage control. And that's my own failure for not seeing every patient as they come through the door, but sometimes that's not possible. And it goes back to those beautiful words that Nat spoke some time ago on this podcast, which is turn off the tap. A patient comes in with a bleeding problem. Yeah, they might need a CT, but that's D 
we need to focus on C before D and just take that dressing down, get a suture pack out, get a good light, get some lignocaine adrenaline, just control the bleeding, and then they can go around for their for their normal CT. And I think that's I'm totally in agreement with you because I've I've also been in that position where we've had to give significant numbers numbers of units of blood for a patient who had been bleeding from their scalp and it hadn't been addressed until they had had their CT. And I'm impressed you can get a CT in half an hour because these patients aren't CT'd urgently. If they are fine and GCS 15, because they're not, they haven't bled enough to compromise their circulation yet, they're not scanned ahead of the other patients. So it can be two and a half, three hours of oozing into that dressing. And so I think it's a good rule for ED generally to take down dressings and have a look for yourself. And it's, it's, difficult and it's uncomfortable because our colleagues, both our nursing and our pre-hospital colleagues do an excellent job of wound care and disguising what's going on under there. But you do need to see it because it doesn't always constitute the entire treatment that that patient needs. They don't just need addressing, they actually need that wound to be addressed. And that wound being addressed might not be something that happens at the end of their care. It might need to be something that happens quite early on. We've done a lot of advanced critical care on this podcast, but if the listeners go away with the one learning point that, it, that you can bleed to death from a scalp laceration, I'm happy. I'll second that. Cliff, a couple of observations, and I might ask Libby for a comment after as well. So if you look at the difference, some of the differences I've noticed between medical and traumatic bleeding. So major trauma often announces itself, doesn't it? Someone has wrapped their car around a pole, they're unwell looking, the pre-hospital team picked them up, either, you know, an aeromedical team or paramedics on the scene, and there's an announcement. There's a call to the hospital. There's a rally of the troops. The trauma team turn up to the ED. There's a process. That team is less likely to miss major bleeding. With major bleeding from medical causes, and it's interesting to hear Carol, you know, think in his mind, he's already thinking, where is the bleeding coming from? That's not a common way of looking at things. Often doctors are not thinking, where is this patient bleeding from? They're not even, I don't think it's even entering necessarily into their mind that this patient is bleeding. So it's not unusual for particularly a gastrointestinal hemorrhage patient who hasn't actually vomited yet, but who's got melina about to occur, because that hasn't been picked up at that point. It's so important what pre-hospital care does. And I think that's something that's often underappreciated by paramedics, that their assessment and how they prime the hospital has a very important effect. So sometimes these patients are brought in, and we've all seen them, a bit unwell, a bit off. Often these patients just complain of lethargy and nothing else. They're not that uh, good on history. And then they come into the hospital and those patients often have occult shock and it's not recognized. It is fairly unusual major trauma to have occult shock or to have shock from bleeding not recognized. Now, one of the interesting things we can do with patients who are not trauma patients, obviously we can't stand trauma patients up to look at their physiology, but with these GI patients in particular, we can stand them up and we can look at a postural tachycardia and see how they respond. Or as I've done before, along the lines of uh, Jeff's analogy with the positive fast scan, I have stood there in front of gastroenterologists and stood the guy up who had a blood pressure of 120 and said, sir, would you mind standing up for a minute? And then watch the pulse go up to 140 and watch 
the guy become pre-syncable and then they go off and go, yep, we'll go to theatre, we'll see you there. So there's certain other ways and nuances, I think, that are different in terms of medical uh, and traumatic bleeding that don't make medical bleeding that easy. I'm old enough to recall the original reasons why, as emergency physicians, we learnt to do ultrasound on patients in the emergency department, and it was for triple A's and ectopic pregnancies. The two diagnoses that we continually to fail to convince surgeons to take people to theatre for. Um, and it was only once we had the skills of ultrasound and the demonstration that this is the source of bleeding that we could convince people that, in fact, that's what needed to happen. Um, and then we've obviously built on those initial skills to the whole panoply of ultrasound that currently exists. I'll just jump in there because it's, um, you know, all, all of the previous statements are sort of, you know, the pre-hospital version of that is we turn up to the pale, sweaty, horribly looking patient and we posture them appropriately. We may or may not give them to crystalloid. Um, we get them to hospital looking really well and it's a really, really hard job to then try and mount a response for a patient that we're actually really worried about because they look quite well now. And that it's quite funny that you're saying, you know, you're needing uh, ultrasound to convince a surgeon. Well, the paramedics actually sort of needing to make the patient look worse again to convince the hospital at times that, no, 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 we're actually really worried about this patient. So sometimes, you know, good treatment in that pre-hospital setting can be to the detriment of the patient because you've then got a hard job convincing the hospital that, no, I think there's something serious going on here. But it's quite funny just to hear your anecdotes right now to see that that flows on at all stages of transfer of care. That's absolutely right, Libs. I've noticed that a lot because I work in pre-hospital and ED and ICU. And I noticed that if you go downstream, those people will have a harder time accepting and believing what's been delivered to them information-wise. A fantastic example of how the paramedics overcame that with a GI bleeder was an old boy who had a big hematemesis but looked okay. And they brought him in and he really did look okay. And they said, he's had a massive upper GI bleed doc. And I went, well, he looks okay now. And they went, yeah, but look at this. And they'd taken a photo of his bedroom, which looked like a scene from Dexter. There was just blood everywhere. And I said, you need to airdrop that photo to me now because no one's going to believe me. Uh, and they went, okay. And so he sent me that picture. The first thing I did was postural vitals, and he had a postural tachycardia. And I phoned the gastroenterologist and said, this guy needs an urgent scope. What's his blood pressure? Well, it's fine. Uh, what's his hemoglobin? Well, it's okay. But he need, And they went, all right, we'll fit him in this afternoon at 3 o'clock. And this was like 10 a.m. And I said, no, no, he needs to come for a scope now. And while I was on the phone to them, he had a massive hematemesis, dropped his BP, we moved around to resus, and he went for a scope. But that was a fantastic use of the paramedics anticipation of the difficulty in transferring that information so you know they deliberately took photos on the scene to try and convince me of how bad that gi bleed was because they've been there before they they knew that no one was going to believe them and i think Lib, i've been reflecting that jeff described that hearts and minds approach as the soft stuff but i've always thought that actually that stuff is really hard and i think there's 
a real issue in the way that we train all across medical professions. Like any computer or AI package can receive data and run an algorithm and come up with a plan, but patients are never going to accept robots in place of people because they want to feel understood. And in the same way, I think that appreciating and addressing those human factors and that nuance and understanding and listening to one another in a bleeding patient or in fact in any resuscitation, that's the stuff that's going to make or break the management and the outcome for that patient. And we probably need to give that a little bit more airtime than we do. Yeah, I certainly couldn't agree more. So in terms of considering how our practice has evolved or what we've learned over recent years, the unspoken superheroes of bleeding, I think, are interventional radiologists. I'm now in a hospital that has 24-hour IR, which is pretty much the first time in my career. And I had a guy that had an abdominal wall hematoma that was expanding, that was causing hemodynamic compromise because he was warfarinized. He had a mechanical heart valve and AF. So we're getting the contrast CT. It's showing the blush. We know he's bleeding. We can see it's getting worse. We're doing hemostatic resuscitation. And I am getting the prothrombin complex concentrate ready to reverse his warfarin. For anyone that's done that knows it's quite a lot of ampules to draw up. It's a significant nursing task load. It might compromise the patient who's being anticoagulated for good medical reasons. And then the interventional radiologist appears in the resus room, says hi to me, hi to the patient, has a quick look at him. He's reviewed the scans. He goes, I can take him round now. And I went, yeah, I'm just giving this PCC to reverse his warfarin. And he says, oh, don't worry about that. I'm going to stop the bleeding. He probably needs his warfarin. And then whisks the patient off, fixes the bleeding. The patient stays on the warfarin. And I'm going, hmm, okay, that was kind of cool. And so just just a, a shout out really to the IR guys. Um, and the earlier you involve them, the more magic they can pull out of that hat and the less you need to do in terms of the other stuff in recess if you can again come back to Nat's point of turn off that tap. You know, the IR technologies are developing and all the time the catheters they use, the uh, embolizing material they use is developing all the time. They are involved in clot retrieval. They are at the pointy end of definitive care in a lot of these cases, which includes medical bleeding and trauma bleeding. Essentially, you could argue that for major hemorrhage or for major trauma or and co-crimson, the interventional radiologist should be called in as part of the first wave uh, or as part of that senior group that Jeff was referring to earlier. Even if you don't have a hybrid suite and even if you are going to the operating theatre, it may be worth having that interventional radiologist in the hospital in position and where feasible, get the patient through the scanner on the way to theatre and see what they can have to offer. I was blown away when the guy actually turned up to the recess room and examined the patient like a radiologist outside the radiology department. I thought the light was going to kind of burn his skin and it would start to sizzle. But <laughs> he was fine. He was fine. He was great. And, and what we've tried to do is get the vascular teams working shoulder to shoulder with the interventional radiologists because they both have transference of skills both ways. And, and that's been a massive thing to, to get in the one operating theatre is, is if we, we, we use hybrid suites to get them to bring their equipment up to the hybrid suites and work together. They're introducing things to each other that they've never seen before or they've never used, you know, gel foam applications for small vessel bleeding or other balloon techniques or other wires or other sorts of things to be able to use together. It's poetry in motion when they all work together. 
and they're all empowered to be able to do things together and not have a turf war or a, a, a sort of an argument over who does what. That, that, I think that's one of the massive things that's changed in our environment recently. On this podcast, we've taken the level of care from what you can do pre-hospital all the way through to what you can do with vascular surgeons and interventional radiologists and 24-hour theatres and all the blood products you ever want. And that's great. But a lot of listeners are going to be frontline workers in less well-resourced systems, and they might want some practical tips. So let's just wind it back a little bit to something simple that we can do at the bedside. All right, we've mentioned turn off the tap. That's principle one. Principle number two is vascular access. What are our options? Libby took us through, you know, getting both arms with venous tourniquets on, looking for a vein, limiting it to one limit and going straight for intraosteous. That's beautiful. But what's your ideal vascular access in an exsanguinating patient and how, and how can you make that happen? Jeff, what are your thoughts on that? So I, I'm a little bit biased in the fact that I'm either going to go subclavian or in the neck because we as anaesthetists only have that access to that patient on, on the bed in that location. Um, obviously, we want to try and be above the diaphragm, um, but using ultrasound in the neck uh, when we've secured the airway is a very common thing for us, well, and it needs to be big. Um, we, we're typically putting swan sheaths in uh, or, or large MAC lines to be able to get central access and large bore access. The thing that we've talked about previously is that IO access is a bridge to getting definitive IV access. As soon as you start moving patients around, the IOs don't stay in very long. And so I don't consider that to be a long-term access for these patients. They all need to have large bore central access, and it's going to be either subclavian or in the neck for me. That's a great point. So IO is a fantastic bridge. It's what you do when you've got nothing else. And we go for humoral because of the faster infusion rates compared with tibial and the fact that it's going to go straight to that central circulation. But as you've said, if once you start moving that patient around – particularly if you move the arms up to do thoracostomies, you've got to be so careful, haven't you? If you externally rotate the arms, so if you have the hands up in the air, those IO needles, they twist and they fall out and they bend. So they get dislodged um, or they get deformed. What you need to do if you need to lift the arms up with an IO in the humerus is you need the hands pointing down, kind of like a scarecrow position. And that's, that's really important. So it's hands down, elbows up if you're going to lift up those arms, if you're going to abduct the shoulders in order to access the chest. Otherwise, you will lose those humeral IOs. Brian, why do we go for subclavian? There's a lot of people that have lost the subclavian skill since the advent of ultrasound-guided femoral and jugular. Is subclavian useful in bleeding? You and I were involved in a, a resuscitation recently where – the patient needed large bore access, an exsanguinating medical patient. I was up at the top end of the bed assisting with the airway and went, sure, put the ultrasound probe on the neck to put a MAC line in the juggler, and there was no juggler. There wasn't even a slit of a juggler, even in expiration. So certainly... My experience with the extremely shocked patients is gaining jugular access is extremely difficult. And the subclavian is kept open. And in fact, a lot of us here on this call do uh, assist in courses, in cadaveric courses, and even in cadavers, the subclavian is patent. So really it's a go-to location for large bore access. And just to be clear, we're not talking about your usual central line. 
which is not a good method of resuscitation. So a standard CVC is not a good method of resuscitation, but your large bore six to eight French, nine French even, sheath type device is is what you need. And subclavian is the way to go for sure. So we have the MAC lines. Jeff mentioned a swan a sheath. The Americans call it a cordis, I think, but yeah, it's some kind of really wide bore central catheter is what you need, isn't it? And we've been using them more and more pre-hospital. And that's not because we kind of need them for our own use, but it's actually for the the next step, the massive transfusion in the hospital. Fantastic. So in terms of concepts, coming back, we've turned off the tap. We've now got our good vascular access. We're going to do our hemostatic resuscitation, which ideally will be Rotem or TEG guided, but we're going to give some TXA if it's trauma or postpartum hemorrhage, and we're going to give balanced blood products rather than crystalloids. The next step is reversing anticoagulation. So if the patient's on warfarin or dabigatran, or rivaroxaban or a pixaban, we need to know what to do to reverse the anticoagulation. And we should have policies in place in our EDs, um, ICUs, theaters, or even pre-hospital to provide those uh, specific antidote therapies or products that will help with that. And finally, we need to think about optimizing blood clotting. So we don't want the patient cold. We rewarm them to normothermia. We top up their ionized calcium. And if we don't have the ability to do that on a blood gas analyzer, we will give calcium gluconate or calcium chloride with our blood products. We just need to optimize clot formation and minimize clot disruption by avoiding any unnecessary handling in trauma. We don't log roll if we don't need to log roll. And Libby spoke about this beautifully earlier, uh, having the pelvic binder in place when you're moving the patient from the vehicle they're being extricated from to the stretcher. We want to do as few moves as possible because movement is bad for clock formation. So those are our general principles. And then turning off the tap might require some specific measures in severe bleeding. The good news is all of these general principles and specific measures can all be summarized in a beautiful, quick reference guide that Breen and I have written for our hospital that we'll put in the show notes. We've printed this out and laminated it two-sided. And any patient that's bleeding, whether it's a nosebleed, whether it's hematuria, hematemesis, or massive major trauma, we pull this laminated guide out and the nurses and the doctors in the resus room will just go through it systematically because it's so easy to forget those little aspects that can make those tiny but important differences in terms of marginal gains. We all need to get better at hemorrhage control. Resuscitology through case reviews has shown us that patients bleed to death when they don't need to. Some of it's systems, but some of it is just basic clinical care. And what we want every listener to this podcast to go away with is a systematic approach where you don't miss any of these important minor points that together make up the difference between life or death. Any other points? Recognition of these patients is often the the first failing. So looking beyond simple blood pressure or pulse rate to the whole patient. Can I just offer, as Libby said right at the beginning, think ahead, know when you're not winning and get help early, whatever that means for you, whether that means calling another specialty, whether it means calling another hospital, whether it means getting more blood available, just be proactive. And something that came up in Libby's pre-hospital summary, Carl's ED summary, and Jeff's theatre summary was the leadership needs to contain the update on what's going on and the priorities or plan for the next five or 10 minutes. So if you're running these cases, tell your team, this is what I think is going on. And then tell them, 
this is what we need to do. This is who's doing it. And this is the time limit in which it needs to be done. This is that periodic sharing of the mental model, the update and the priorities that is the key to progressing a resuscitation, whether it's in or out of the hospital, whether it's medical or trauma, whether it's adult or peds. If you can take away that concept, your leadership and your setting of the mission trajectory will be much better and your patients and your teams will benefit. Lastly, for me, Cliff, just to comment on, which is when you have a patient who is bleeding to death, it is sometimes slightly bewildering to you that you're unable to convince the specialty or the proceduralist who can turn off that tap that the tap is open. And you need to look at strategies and rehearse those strategies as to how you're going to demonstrate that. Jeff mentioned the demonstration of the ultrasound or, as you mentioned, Cliff, um, showing the ultrasound in a hypovolemic shock patient, show the empty heart. And you have to put it together in a very specific, non-judgmental, objective package that really leaves that person in no doubt that this patient is bleeding. Because remember, those, those other specialties want to do the right thing. It's just they don't quite believe you. Nicely put. So the take-home points, resuscitologists out there, are any patient that's bleeding, treat them all the same. Think about how do I turn off this tap and how do I optimize blood replacement and blood clotting in the meantime? It doesn't matter where you are or what's wrong with the patient. Just think about hemorrhage control as a single entity that can kill that patient and it's your job to manage that. We'll put a whole bunch of resources in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. It's goodbye from Cliff. Goodbye from Lib. Goodbye from Carol. And it's good night from me. And it's goodbye from him. And goodbye from Nat. <laughs>